Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. So this Easter morning, I want us to consider the possibility of Easter in an age that views Easter as an impossibility. I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence this morning by dismissing the audacity, some might even call it absurdity, of this gathering. It is what it is. We're not going to soften the claims of what we believe. We are here to proclaim and celebrate the news that something our world says cannot happen has happened. Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead. It's very easy for Christians to take for granted our little bubble of belief where a dead man coming back to life remains plausible But it's important to be reminded that we are celebrating Easter at a point in history that says Easter cannot possibly be true. I remember being struck by this the night before Easter a couple years ago. My son was going through a phase of development where he was constantly looking to me for reassurance that what he feared in his mind was just pretend. So monsters are just pretend, right daddy? And I would assure him that, yes, monsters are just pretend. And this was kind of a routine in our house. In fact, the the first prayer I remember him praying was a very passionate prayer. Thank you, Jesus, that Darth Vader is just pretend. Which I couldn't agree more, personally. So it's the night before Easter, and I'm reading to him from his children's Bible, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he says to me, that's just pretend, right, Daddy? And I explained to him, well, actually, this one isn't pretend. And you know what? Full disclosure, as a Christian minister giving his life away to Jesus, I understand that dilemma. I'm asking him to disbelieve in monsters and Darth Vader, but I'm asking him to believe a dead man came back to life. And I vividly remember that dilemma of belief landing on me the night before I was going to stand before hundreds and hundreds of people to proclaim that a dead man came back to life. An impossible assertion in our secular age of unbelief. Philosopher James K. Smith likens this age of unbelief to a painting on display in Manhattan's Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's an early 
17th century painting inspired by the book of Revelation called The Vision of St. John. It depicts uh, Christian martyrs and uh, the Apostle John himself reaching up to the heavens in worship. But sadly, what we see now is only a fragment of the original painting. The original was trimmed in 1880, and what was cut off from the painting was the top half, the scene of heaven displaying the triumphant risen Jesus and heavenly hosts, the the top portion, the transcendent part, the heavenly realm was cut off, leaving John and Christian martyrs reaching up in worship to nothing. Jamie Smith says it like this, In what seems a fitting parable of our modern world, the exultant arms of John reach upward to nothing. To the top of the painting frame, to the edge of the canvas, John seems to praise the non-existence, looking for something that is no longer there. What a perfect way to describe how our disenchanted world of unbelief views this gathering this morning. Lifting our arms in prayer, we're Presbyterians, not arms, our hearts, I guess, our voices in praise, whatever we lift. Lifting our hearts and songs in praise to worship something that isn't there. There is nothing beyond what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, the, the frame of natural existence. We lift our praise to a resurrected Jesus who is not there, for there is nothing there beyond our natural order. I mean, religion is useful to life. It's nice for us to get together, convince ourselves that this happened, find a hope in that belief. But come on, we all know it didn't really happen. That is the predominant opinion of our time, and perhaps that is the opinion of some here this morning or online. One of my favorite things about Easter Sunday is that there are skeptics among us who are willing, if just for a morning, to give transcendence a try. To peer into this strange world of Christianity that still believes in these ancient myths. And I want to thank you for your curiosity But I would argue that even the most committed believers among us also struggle with the audacity of Easter. Every honest Christian living in this secular age will tell you that deep down there are doubts. How can there not be? We cannot help but feel the pressure of unbelief that is all around us. And so at times we wonder are they right? Am I crazy? Are we crazy for what we believe? I and mean, we, we've said numerous times already, risen indeed. There is a part of the believer's soul that says, risen I hope. Risen I think. That's why I love the story of Thomas. He is referred to as Doubting Thomas, but he might as well be called 21st century enlightened, educated, secular, Western society Thomas, though I suppose that's not as catchy. What's so fascinating about Thomas's story is we get to see our skeptical worldview encounter the resurrection. It's as if this story was recorded specifically for our moment in history. So let's consider it together this morning. Two things take place here in the passage. First, we see Thomas's demand for the evidence, 
And then second, we see the evidence's demand for Thomas. Let's start with his demand for evidence. Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, listen to this, I will never believe. That statement perfectly expresses the philosophy of our modern world. Notice how belief is contingent upon empirical evidence. I will never believe unless I see, unless I touch, unless I am given irrefutable physical element, evidence. That sounds a lot like the modern skeptic, does it not? So let's dwell here on verse 25 for a moment, since it is so applicable to our context. What I want to do is I want to both critique and affirm his statement here, his demand for evidence because I think it calls for both. First, let's think critically about what he says here. Thomas is making an epistemological claim. Epistemology speaks to the concept of knowledge. What we know, how we come to know things, the scope and limits of knowledge, and so forth. And the epistemology we see on display here is what is known as Cartesian doubt, named after Rene Descartes, the father of Enlightenment thought. Descartes flipped the paradigm of knowledge to advocate for doubt over belief. So knowledge, according to Cartesian doubt, is discovered this way. Doubt everything until I obtain undeniable evidence that I should believe. Descartes and other Enlightenment philosophers argued that for too long, humanity has been cavalier with belief. So the Enlightenment offered a reset of sorts. Rather than the default of belief, our new default will be doubt. Doubt everything unless it is proven undeniably true. But there's a problem with that line of reasoning that post-enlightenment philosophers have demonstrated. The problem with doubt everything until I have irrefutable evidence to believe is that the majority of things we believe don't meet that standard. So when Thomas says, I will only believe when I can see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands, he has eliminated the vast majority of things he believes. Things like love, beauty, purpose, morality. These things that we all believe in and live our lives according to don't meet Thomas' standard here in verse 25. So Thomas, much like the modern skeptic, is in a bind when he says, I must have irrefutable proof to believe because so much of what we believe cannot pass that narrow test. Now, that critique aside, at the same time, we do need to affirm Thomas here, right? Because let's be honest, this is a pretty big claim he is being asked to accept. A resurrection is not something one should carelessly believe in, much less base their entire life upon without good reason. And Jesus understands this. I think one of the most beautiful parts of Thomas's story is how graciously accommodating Jesus is to his friend's unbelief. Look at how he responds in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Not, how could you not believe? Haven't I proven myself? No, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. What we see here is a Savior 
who is actually very comfortable with our doubts. And he's very patient with his skeptical friend. Every demand that Thomas makes, Jesus provides. Verse 25, unless I see his hands. Verse 27, look at my hands. Verse 25, unless I place my finger in the mark of his nails. Verse 27, put your finger here. Verse 25, unless I place my hand into his side. Verse 27, place your hand into my side. Now, I know what you want to say here. He hasn't given me that evidence. Must be nice to be Thomas to get to see and touch the resurrected Jesus. But I haven't had that experience. But that misses the point. The point of this story and the many other accounts we have of the resurrection, verified historical accounts of the resurrection, is that Jesus has now made himself a verifiable or falsifiable historical event. In appearing to Thomas and hundreds more publicly, he forever sets himself apart from all other religious claims. Listen, we're not allowed to lump Jesus in with stereotypical religions asking you to believe with blind belief. Jesus never asked that of you. Instead, he confronts history, not necessarily with his claims and teachings, but with himself, specifically his resurrected self. It is precisely because of eyewitness encounters like the one in our passage that we can now historically verify the resurrection of Jesus. My doctoral work is in the field of history. And what that means is I am not studying the repeatable like scientists. I'm studying that which by definition is unrepeatable. And so I'm essentially acting like a crime scene investigator in my work, taking all the historical evidence available and analyzing it to discover what exactly took place. This is how we must approach the resurrection, not according to scientific evidence, but historical evidence. If we test the resurrection according to science, we all know the results of that. But when we approach it from the science of history, it becomes unbelievably compelling. So let me give you the facts that all historians agree upon, okay? There is more evidence, but I'm just going to give you what is widely agreed upon by all scholars. There's four of them. Fact one, we know this for certain. Rome crucified and buried a very popular and public figure named Jesus of Nazareth. Fact two, we know this for certain. A few days later, his tomb was discovered to be empty. Fact three, on multiple occasions and in many different circumstances, individuals and entire groups of people had post-mortem encounters with Jesus. They met Jesus after he died. Not just his disciples and friends, but many others, most significantly his fiercest enemy of Saul of Tarsus. Even the most skeptical historian admits this. They can say, well, maybe they were hallucinating or something, but this is historically demonstrated. Fact four, out of nowhere and against all odds, there arose history's most significant movement not based not on teachings or revelation like other religions, but upon a very falsifiable event Jesus risen from the dead. Those are the historical facts that scholars agree upon. And what this evidence does is it places the skeptic in an awkward position of trying to get around the evidence for another explanation, which is very difficult to do and increasingly difficult in light of more recent historical scholarship on the resurrection. The more we study the history, the more difficult it is to come up with another explanation. I think people 
just assume that the resurrection is religious folklore passed down through the centuries when in actuality it is the most documented, verifiable, evidence-supported event from the ancient world. So overwhelming is the supportive evidence that Harvard scholar Simon Greenleaf says it takes more faith to not believe in the resurrection than it does to believe it. Simply put, were we discussing anything else from history other than a resurrection, there would be zero doubt, historically speaking, that it happened. But the problem for many, and I understand, the problem for many is that we are talking about a resurrection. And for some, opening themselves up to the supernatural explanation is simply asking too much. N.T. Wright is the most prominent living scholar on the resurrection. He tells the story of an Oxford colleague reviewing his most significant work entitled The Resurrection of the Son of God. And this unbelieving, um, skeptical scholar um, admits that Wright's scholarship is brilliant, that his argument is solid, and historically speaking, his work is overwhelming, overwhelmingly compelling. But, he says to his friend Tom Wright, no matter what the evidence suggests, dead people don't come back to life. To which N.T. Wright responds, that's fine, my friend. Just so long as you are willing to admit that now you're the one denying the evidence in favor of blind faith. Do you see? The evidence of the resurrection is so overwhelming that it turns the skeptic into a believer of a different kind. Skepticism becomes its own form of faith. Faith that transcendence is simply impossible. Faith that requires us to deny the evidence of history's greatest miracle in order to maintain our faith commitment that miracles cannot happen. We are right to demand evidence of such an extraordinary claim. But what will be our response when the evidence turns around and makes a demand of us? When something we doubt could ever be true turns around and forces us to doubt that doubt. That's what happened with Thomas. Let's go there next. Having seen his demand for the evidence, let's now consider the evidence's demand for him. Look at what Jesus says to Thomas at the end of verse 27. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What we see here is that the risen Jesus leaves no middle ground. It is disbelief or believe. His resurrection is too significant for anything other than an all-in or all-out commitment. Accept him or reject him. That is what the evidence demands of us. Let's watch Thomas respond in verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Poor Thomas gets called Doubting Thomas when from his previously skeptical lips comes arguably the clearest and boldest confession of Jesus that we find in all the Gospels. My Lord and my God. But what I want you to notice here is that his confession is in a direct response to the reality of the resurrection. Thomas is not wrestling with whether he finds Jesus and his teachings and his ethics suitable or to his liking, whether he finds his heart strangely warmed emotionally, whether he 
sees Jesus as good for his life and self-improvement. Thomas isn't wrestling with the stereotypical reasons people wrestle through when trying to decide whether to follow Jesus or not. Instead, Thomas has been confronted with the first and foremost reason why anyone should follow Jesus. He is risen from the dead, which means he has proven definitively to be what Thomas confesses him to be, Lord and God. And that same confrontation is before us this morning. Friends, I'd be more than happy to go to coffee and wade through different questions and objections you may have with Christianity. But Easter has a way of placing those in proper proportion. Before we answer any question you may have, this question must be answered. What are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We have two options, disbelieve or believe. That is what is before us, and Jesus is pleading for the latter. Did you notice his demand is phrased in the form of a plea? Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus is not neutral here. He wants Thomas to believe, and he wants you to believe. What if he has you here or online to hear him say, friend, do not disbelieve, but believe. I know that belief may seem wholly implausible to your worldview, but what if your worldview is wrong? To use the illustration of that painting, what if there is something beyond the frame? What if there is another realm, a supernatural reality beyond our natural reality? And what if that reality has broken through in Jesus Christ? What if Easter is true? If so, it changes everything. We now have a new starting point, don't we? The resurrection becomes its own epistemology. N.T. Wright explains this with another illustration about another painting and museum. He says the resurrection in our modern world is like a magnificent painted painting donated to a museum. The painting is so glorious that it has to be on display, but it's too big to be displayed anywhere in the museum. So instead, they decide to tear down the entire building and rebuild around the painting as the central feature. Then, in so doing, it also fixes several things that were wrong with the old building. In order to accept the painting, the museum had itself to be transformed, and what they discovered is the new museum is far better than the old one. That, N.T. Wright suggests, is what the resurrection does to our lives. You cannot fit it in the closed-off, disenchanted framework of our modern world. There is no room for a resurrection there. But when you dismantle that framework and then construct a new one big enough to allow for the central reality of the resurrection, what you will discover is that the old way of viewing things had many deficiencies, and the new world that is now open before you is far more beautiful. What if you weren't made for doubt but for belief? What if you didn't have to give up on the so many transcendent longings you have been forced to relinquish because of a closed worldview that doesn't allow for transcendence? What if you discovered a new worldview where those longings can be fulfilled? My son 
who needed my reassurance that monsters are just pretend is older now. And what I've noticed is now he wishes those stories were true. I catch him pretending to be a superhero, defeating evil. I see him enthralled by movies that end in happily ever after. His excitement when against all odds the story's tragedy gives way to victory and wrongs are finally made right. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien argues in his essay on fairy tales that this is within my son because there is something inside all of us that doesn't just long for those things to be true, but knows they should be true. Our souls never outgrow the longing for fairy tales to be true. 17 out of the top 20 grossing films of all time are all fantasy mythologies. Transcendent battles of good versus evil, where good triumphs in the end, we can't shake our longing for transcendence. But in the closed-off world of secular unbelief, these irrepressible longings of the human heart must be suppressed to fit within the bleak worldview of unbelief. But if Easter is true, then you're not just longing for a transcendent story. You're in one. I'm not asking you not just asking you to open yourself up to the plausibility of Easter, but to the plausibility that everything you long to be true will come true in the end. We say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, because Jesus is risen, therefore Jesus is true. Not necessarily because we find him to our liking, but I think you're going to like him. Thomas was looking for more than just evidence, wasn't he? What is it he wanted to see and touch? And what was it that Jesus invited Thomas to see and touch? The scars. The indelible marks of his gospel story. The resurrection does not just mean that Jesus is true. It means everything he offers with those scars will come true. It means forgiveness, not condemnation, is the final word of this story. It means healing, not brokenness, is the final word. It means justice, not injustice. Peace, not violence, is the final word. It means eternal life and everlasting joy, not some nihilistic grave, is the final word of your story. Friends, in opening yourself up to belief in Easter, you are opening yourself up to belief in hope. Hope that everything you long to be true is going to come true. Let me pray. O risen Christ, may the reality and truth of Easter land on us in a way it never has. And would you send us forth full of hope, full of certainty, with our longings free to run wild, that the destiny will indeed be more than any eye has seen, ear has heard, heart has imagined, that in the end all of these longings will be true. Because Easter is true. Thank you, Jesus, for your victory. And we pray in your name. Amen.